I'm Matt. I'm Noel. I'm Ben. And we are Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Each week we cover the latest and strangest in fringe science, government cover-ups, allegations of the paranormal, and more. New episodes come out every Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And in recent years, uh, we have started this tradition where we cover the life of a classic horror actor each October as part of our sort of Halloween programming. And this year is no different, but it's a little bit different in terms of how we're doing it this time. Vincent Price is perhaps the best-known horror actor of all time. His acting career started on the stage in the 1930s when he was in his 20s, and he eventually uh, made the move to star in Hollywood films. In the 1950s, Vincent's work in horror began with films such as House of Wax and The Fly. And in the 1960s, he worked with director Roger Corman on a series of movies based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, beginning with my very, very favorite House of Usher. And this group of projects really made Vincent Price an icon of gothic cinema. But they were really just a small part of a career which spanned more than five decades and included literally hundreds of projects. So today, rather than just telling you his life story, as we so often do, we have the delight of welcoming his daughter, Victoria Price, to talk about her father. She wrote a really fantastic biography of him entitled Vincent Price, A Daughter's Biography. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It is. I don't think I have ever read a deeper dive biography of anybody ever before. It's quite amazing. And the interview actually does not go into his acting career all that much. And that's because Vincent Price was so much more than an actor. Uh, and even with my pared down list of questions, this episode is going to run quite long uh, because Victoria was very gracious and let me just yap at her forever. Uh, we're going to jump right into that chat with Victoria Price. And I hope that you will be surprised by what an incredibly interesting life Mr. Price led off screen. So welcome to the podcast, Victoria Price. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my god, really fun. It is so exciting for me. I can't even tell you regular listeners to our show know that I am a huge fan of your father's. So this is like Halloween and Christmas and birthdays all wrapped up together for me. I love that. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to just first talk about kind of one of the most endearing things about your dad that you've written a lot about and other people have, too. And that was the fact that he was incredibly cultured uh, and, you know, really had a great sense of aesthetics and was a very smart man. But he was so disdainful of snobbery. I wonder yeah, he was just a real person completely. Uh, why do you think it was always so important for him to stay so grounded, even at the height of his fame? It's a really good question. I don't think anybody's really asked me that that way, but that's how he was raised. And I think part of it came from being raised in the Midwest. You know, he saw himself as a Midwestern boy. He was raised in St. Louis in, in a wealthy family. Um, but not a, a family that saw itself as pretentious. Certainly his mother had aspirations of pretensions. <laughs> she applied to be uh, a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, but but it wasn't that sort of East Coast 
um, kind of sense of snobbery that might have been possible for him. And so when he went to Yale, he was an outsider in in a sense that most of the boys came from the same schools as as one another. They'd known each other in high school. And then the Midwestern and the West Coast boys were were very different. So even though his dad had gone to Yale and his older brother had gone to Yale, he he felt very much like a Midwesterner. I also think that he loved the arts, and that made him kind of an oddball growing up as well, in the sense that he, you know, to love the arts if you come out of a business family makes you kind of strange. And so I think, and I say that, you know, as, as a good thing, so I think that really made him somebody who saw himself as an outsider, who didn't feel like he fit the norm and so he never was going to be someone who viewed himself as better than anyone else. And I think that really um, made all the difference. And you mentioned that he came from a wealthy family, and there's a really interesting aspect of your father's life and his sort of mentality regarding money that you talk about a lot in your biography of him, that he was always convinced due to the fact that his grandfather had lost everything in the panic of 1893, that he was ever in danger of losing his money and his ability to provide for the family. And I know that affected his career. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think he he was very fearful uh, that that there wouldn't be enough. Now, that's not how he lived his everyday life. Like, he didn't walk around being paralyzed by fear. But I do think that he made decisions that weren't necessarily decisions based on, I think I can say no to this, I'm I'm okay. He always said yes. Not only was he interested in everything, but he, he also wanted to say yes to a, a job coming in, to money coming in. And I think that that's in part because he did have fear that the next job might be his last. And and certainly there are many actors who who have that sense, you know, that it's not a it's not a profession with assurances. But but I think that was very strong for him. And in his early career. I think a lot of people that maybe know him from his his later gothic and horror films don't realize that he really started on Broadway and even before that on the London stage playing uh, Albert in Victoria Regina, which is near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and I think it's interesting that one, he started on the stage, but two, he was so lauded for that performance early on that he pretty quickly started getting offers to do films, but he initially turned a lot of them down and was reluctant to take romantic leads. Can you talk about the yeah, reasoning? Yeah, he wanted to be a character actor. He really did. And I think that he was so handsome that nobody really saw that as a possibility. And for him, it was not interesting to be kind of a fluffy actor, a lightweight actor, somebody who was just going to be in in comedy roles or in leading man roles, it really wasn't what he wanted to do. And so 
when he got the movie contract, it was a million-dollar movie contract in the middle of the Depression, and he asked his co-star's advice, and his co-star was Helen Hayes, the first lady of the American theater, and she had had a long and, and storied career. And he asked her advice what to do, and she said, do you want to just be, you know, a flash in the pan? And he said, of course not. And so that was really the impetus for him to do something different. She said, if you don't learn your craft, then you're just going to fade out. You need to learn how to become an actor. And so he stayed on Broadway, but he also did summer stock because in those days, Broadway stayed closed in the summer because there was no air conditioning. So that was really his impetus to learn how to become an actor. And that's what he wanted, and that's what he did. And you mentioned that he was so terribly handsome that, of course, they were offering him those roles, which makes me have to ask about his multiple nose breaks, uh, which he would reset on his own in most cases. And he seemed (laughs) really reluctant to actually have a doctor fix his nose for a long time. Why do you think he was so uh, trepidatious about it? I think they, he thought they might pretty him up, and you know he he liked having having a nose that had some distinction to it. I love it. And there's some interesting political stuff that you wrote a lot about with your father. And I know, unfortunately, I know I've seen online like people will cherry pick parts of of your father's politics when he was very young and sort of impressionable and making kind of not the best choices um, or not the best assessments of situations. Will you talk a little bit about one, why you shared kind of those parts of his political journey and also, you know, how you see him going from those kind of foolish writings that he did when he was very young and traveling through Europe up through when he became really very liberal later in life? Yeah, I included them. So in doing research, I found my father writing things that really surprised me, but particularly anti-Semitic things, which was completely shocking to me because it seemed so unlike the man I knew. He was the least racist or um, discriminatory person, you know, you could possibly meet. And so I thought... Who was this person? And what I realized was that he came from a a certain class background um, where that was the norm. I mean, Roosevelt turned away Jewish refugees in boats on our shores. Uh, And, you know, we think of, of Roosevelt as being this incredible liberal president, which he was, but that was, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in this country. And of course, now, given everything that's going on politically in our country, that's probably not so surprising. But when I wrote the book in 99, and we were in a seemingly much more open-minded and liberal, um, and I don't mean that politically liberal, I mean just liberally open-minded phase than we are now, to talk about someone's um, anti-Semitism or discrimination on the basis of religion or ethnicity seems, <laughs> you know, seems like, wow, they must have been a freak. Now we're we're seeing all sorts of things in our country about how all of those undercurrents continue to exist. And, um, and I wrote 
what I wrote because I wanted to show that someone can change their mind. And someone can recognize the error of their ways. Someone can look at how they grew up or what they were taught by uh, the world in which they lived and choose to think differently, choose to recognize that we don't need to discriminate against other people based on uh, anything. And that's what happened to my dad, and that's why I included it in the book. I'm so glad you did, because it is a, a really sort of beautiful story of how he shifted his mindset. And also talking about politics, you found out really after his death that he had been on the gray list during the McCarthy era. Uh, and I know he had talked about it somewhat when you were when he was still alive, but you didn't really know the depth of his involvement in that whole uh, dramatic proceedings. Uh, will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I knew that he had been gray-listed because he and I did talk about that because I became very interested in that in high school. I was studying the McCarthy era, and I remember talking to him about it. And in my high school history book, there was a photograph of McCarthy with his two right-hand men, and one was, of course, Roy Cohn, who we've all heard about. But the other's last name was Shine, and it was an unusual spelling of the name Shine, and it sort of rung a bell. And I went and did some research on it, and I found out that that man was the father of um, our student body president in my school. And she was, I was on the student council, she was somebody I saw at every student council meeting, and so it you know, here was this period that I found so despicable and this perfectly normal, nice girl's father had been responsible for ruining the lives of so many people and, and spewing all this vitriol. So it, it brought it home to me and I asked my dad then when I was in high school, 15, in that class about that period of, of time. And so he told me his story. And then toward the end of his life, he elaborated a little bit more about how his name was cleared. And my mom told me a little bit more. But what I didn't really know um, was what he had to do to clear his name. And when I was cleaning out his house, toward the very end of all of that, I found a... Um, a manila envelope hidden behind the air conditioner in his house. Now, that, that house was a house he moved into in the late 80s, and he had moved many times since the 1950s. So he had carried that piece of paper with him and saved it. And that was the really interesting thing to me because it, it showed me how afraid he was. And it was the document that he signed with the FBI to clear his name. And in it, he said many things that I know he did not believe. And uh, things like anyone who pleads the fifth is un-American. And so knowing that, um, I, I was really kind of blown away by by what he had to do to clear his name, I had some judgment about it. And I remember um, going and telling um, my Uncle Eddie, who was Eddie Albert, that I had just found this. And he was just about the, the nicest, most easygoing human being on the planet, and he ripped my head off. 
he said, you know, how dare you judge somebody? You don't know what it was like then. And he proceeded to tell me that his wife, my beloved Aunt Margot, um, had been blacklisted and never worked again during that era. And so I, I really um, understood and have understood even more as I've gone through my life um, what my dad went through and what he felt he needed to do to get his life back. And he made a little bit of a deal with the devil and yet remained so afraid throughout his life that it could still come back to bite him. And I think that's really been, for me, um, a a real lesson in, in humility and understanding that we can never judge another person. So it's kind of sobering, I think, to realize that even decades after McCarthyism, someone as prominent as Vincent Price still harbored very real fear about it. Yeah, I think there's a perception that once that era was over, people were like, whoa, they're glad that's done with. And not that it still continued to be such a presence in people's minds. Yeah. So next up, things are going to take a little bit of a lighter turn. We're going to talk about Vincent Price's love of animals. But first, we will have a quick sponsor break. You and I constantly look forward to learning. It is one of the fun things about working on this show, constantly getting to learn new stuff, which is why we really, really enjoy having subscriptions to The Great Courses Plus. There's always something new to learn. There's a huge library of very engaging video lectures and just so many topics, and they're all presented by award-winning professors. You can learn more about whatever interests you. I mean, we're about to talk about history, but there is a lot of stuff that is outside of the realm of history. So you can learn about the Vikings or World War II or genealogy or photography. (laughs) Like, it's really all over the map. Yeah. Cooking, martial arts, they got you. New courses are also added all the time. So there are always neat things to learn. So we recommend watching The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. It explores the impact that the plague had on 14th century Europe. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about it, which I had never even thought of, is that there are some communities that survived that first wave of the plague. They were nearly untouched thanks to things like their geography and their populations and the climate where they particularly were. There is a whole unit just on, you know, those communities that somehow managed to to uh, survive almost unscathed by that first round of the Black Death in Europe. With The Great Courses Plus, you can stream as many different lectures as you want, The Black Death or other things, uh, anytime, anywhere from a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop, or a television. We want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus today because they are giving our listeners a special offer. You get an entire month of unlimited access to all their lectures for free. So start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. As promised, there is some animal talk up next, and Holly is going to ask Victoria a million questions about a topic that's almost as central to Vincent Price's life as his acting career, which is his deep love of art. I think most people probably don't know, unless they have read biographies about your father, that he was a huge animal lover. 
and, yes, and even was. wrote a book about one of his dogs. <laughs> mm-hmm. He did. He wrote a wonderful book called The Book of Joe, which we've just re-released this year. And it's it's a just, I think, one of his sweetest books. I, I did the audiobook recording of it last year. And and when I did it, it of course, I'd read the book many times, but reading it in his voice, um, I mean, I wasn't trying to sound like him, who can sound like him, but reading you know, what he sounded like writing it, first of all, reminded me of who he was and, and how much I loved that. But just the sweetness and the humor that he had was uh, incredibly endearing. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book, Book of Joe, about a dog and his man. <laughs> it's so sweet. Um, it is. It's. I, I mean, I'm an animal person, I, so it's always so endearing, especially when you consider that to many people – uh, your dad was such a an icon of like villainy to just picture him like so completely enamored of his pets is very very sweet. I feel like we really cannot talk about your father without talking about art. Uh, that would yeah. it would be supremely weird not to talk about art. Um, the, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that was to me revelatory the first time I read it was the fact that he bought his first piece of art with his allowance when he was eleven. I know. It's not unbelievable. Yeah, he was walking by a uh, an art gallery in St. Louis, Missouri, where he grew up, and he fell in love with this piece of art in the window. It was a first state Rembrandt etching. And so he decided to go in and talk to the gallery owner. And, you know, to this day, I bless that gallery owner who didn't have to do this, who could have just laughed at this kid, but instead instead saw a kid who was so earnest and interested in art, and he made a payment plan with him. And so my dad spent the next three years saving up all of his money, and he would go in and make payments. And when he finally paid that piece off and took possession of his first work of art, he was just absolutely um, so blown away by owning his first piece of art. And uh, it, it changed his life. It gave his life a focus. At the end of his life, someone gave him a little pin and it said, Art Saves Lives. And really, that is how he felt without hyperbole that art had saved his life because it gave him a whole sense of purpose and focus in the world. Well, and he was, in fact, planning to teach art history and did teach for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he would have made the most wonderful professor. Well, and he did, I mean, he did continue to teach the masses in many ways about art. Um, one of the other art stories that I wanted to mention uh, that you also have in your book is the piece that he purchased when he was living in New York, uh, the Zapata painting, which was so massive it took up an entire wall and you couldn't really look at it properly unless you <laughs> laid down under the kitchen table. <laughs> Yeah, it was meant to be seen from below, and he got at home, and he realized that, and he was he was like, oh. <laughs> and so he would lie down under the kitchen table, you know, to really see it, which is so cute. And he, he felt that it was too important of a painting for him to keep, so it's now at the Chicago Art Institute where I've been able to see it, and it's it's an amazing thing to be able to 
go see uh, the art that uh, that my dad collected. And I'm so grateful that he believed that art was not something to be owned, but rather something that you caretake. And that was that was something he truly, truly felt. And so I've been able to continue to enjoy a lot of the art that uh, I grew up with because it's in institutions. And I, I think that's a really wonderful way to live, to not feel that you have to own something uh, forever or that, you know, your sort of your stamp is on it, but really that you are um, part of the legacy of a piece. And I think that's that's just a beautiful thing. It is. I also like the, the part of that story where he um, allowed art students to come and lie down under his kitchen table to also enjoy <laughs> Enjoy that yes. piece. It's so charming. I know. Isn't that sweet? It's very dear. Uh, and he also championed the recognition and preservation of Native American art and culture, mm-hmm. which I bet most people very do much not so. know about. He, he fell in love with Native American art growing up in St. Louis because they'd go out to Cahokia, which is one of the great mound cultures and uh, an incredible place to visit if you're in the St. Louis area. It's actually on the other side of the river. Um, and then he was sent to a summer camp where he uh, was very reluctant to go, but ended up discovering uh, a Native American burial ground and notified the authorities and had his picture in the paper. And so this just enamored him with learning more about Native American culture. And he began collecting Native American art when he was in his 30s and in the 1950s, he was appointed to something called the Indian Arts and Crafts Board, which is part of the Department of the Interior, by uh, President Eisenhower. And he remained on that for uh, 15 years, and he chaired it the last five years. So uh, it was something that was very important to him, and it's a very important part of his legacy. And again, you know, I think a, a wonderful example of... You know, he he was someone who was very open to and interested in other cultures, and so he himself recognized that the anti-Semitic beliefs that he was trained to believe weren't true to who he was, and and that's that's also part of the legacy to to change his mind. You know, we forget that we hear these words in the Bible or in in spiritual traditions that seem like words we don't really understand and and they sound like they're beating us over the head like repent you know you see somebody foaming at the mouth and yelling on tv the word repent repent but the word repent really just means change your mind rethink something and uh, he was somebody who was willing to look at what no longer served him in terms of his thinking and change his mind and i think that that's that is an incredible um, legacy for me to live with. Well, it takes a great deal of maturity, I think, that it is hard to engage with sometimes as a human to a- a- acknowledge, like, no, that was incorrect and I have to be better than that. Uh, right. It's hard to let go of things at times. Uh, you mentioned, Absolutely. You mentioned his connection with the White House, and he also served on the White House Art Committee during the Kennedy administration uh, to actually bring art into the White House, which is pretty cool. Yes. You know, it's a wonderful, speaking of legacies, so um, 
Mrs. Kennedy recognized that the White House had been sort of treated like each president's own home. They moved in, they fixed it up the way they wanted, and she thought, well, that's crazy. This is a national monument. This is a historic monument. We we shouldn't be treating it like, like you know, it's, you're buying a home and you're going to change the fixtures in it because you might like the color blue. And so she uh, put together a committee of people to buy art that would be owned by the United States government, um, but it's art that then each president can choose from. And one of the things that was really, really moving to my father was that he donated a piece which was a watercolor of some clouds by the Hudson Valley painter Albert Bierstadt. And that was the uh, piece that President Kennedy himself loved the most. And he hung that on the end of his bed. And um, my dad really found that um, he just loved knowing that somebody had such a personal relationship to that piece that he had donated. I love that story so much. And speaking of his love of art and the democratization of art, uh, I wanted to talk to you some about the Sears Roebuck art program. Because even when I mention this to people like, oh, no, Vincent Price was buying art for Sears Roebuck to then sell to the masses, they think that what he was doing was buying art and they were making prints. But no, he was buying originals and Sears Roebuck was cultivating those in galleries and selling them. Yeah, an amazing thing. Yeah, you could buy a Picasso or a Dali or a Vuillard or a Whistler on your Sears credit card with a money-back guarantee. <laughs> is that crazy or what? That is really quite funny. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, that program really took up so much of his life and was such a passion for him. Yes. Uh, uh, you speak in your book so much about both your father and mother working on that sort of tirelessly and constantly traveling the world and finding new pieces to add. Uh, it's one of those things that still blows me away. I think most people today would have some difficulty accepting this information <laughs> because it's so outside. Yeah, it, people, I say that and people laugh, you know, but I can't tell you the number of people who have come up to me and said, I began buying art because I bought my first piece from your dad at Sears Roebuck. It was a, it was a serious and important thing, and it really, really changed some people's lives. I love it. Um, and now I'm going to shift gears, though. I could talk about art and your dad, I think, forever. But uh, also one of my great loves and your dad's is cooking, um, yes. which was kind of in the blood. His grandfather invented cream of tartar and went mm-hmm. on to develop yeah, baking powder, baking powder. It was a cream of tartar baking powder. Gotcha. So close. Yeah. Uh, and went on to develop a number of flavoring extracts and other things. Um, yeah. And it's so I sort of associate the kitchen as being in the price blood at that point. Um, I have a copy of a treasury of great recipes that my husband got me quite a number of years ago. And I think I cried oh, when cool. he gave it to me. I love it so much. But will you talk a little bit about his love of cooking and how he ended up writing cookbooks? You bet. Uh, so, uh, my pat answer is that he loved to eat. <laughs> my dad loved to eat. So that's kind of how it all started. First of all, he was six foot four, and if his metabolism was anything like mine, you know, he, he loved to eat and he ate a lot. 
and uh, and he could, you know, uh, more easily than than other people. And so he um, began eating. He loved to learn anything, so he liked to learn how to cook. My mother was an excellent cook, and they spent a lot of time in the kitchen together. And then when they traveled the world, they really... Uh, began collecting recipes and design elements and doing all of these very, very cool things. And it was really Sears Roebuck, again, that came up with this idea of creating this cookbook. And so they collaborated with my dad to, to and my mom, both of them, to create this cookbook that was a, a, a big, big deal. It sold. 350,000 copies when it first came out and it became after it fell out of print the eighth most popular out of print book of any kind and so we released a 50th anniversary edition of it last year and it's still immensely popular somebody just sent me an email they're doing a blog this month every day they're cooking a different recipe the New York Times just did a piece last week on chicken tetrazzini including the recipe from from the cookbook and this week uh, we are um, releasing the second cookbook from that series which was also in collaboration with Sears which is called Come Into the Kitchen and that was another book uh, that both my dad's dad and mom did and it's a, sort of a, a history of American cuisine, which, again, was a very populist thing to do because everything was all about Europe, Europe, Europe. And my dad was very much uh, an advocate of what was coming out of this country. Now we think of ourselves as this artistic and creative as well as financial and you know global military, whatever, superpower. But... When my dad was coming up, we were still very much in the shadow of Europe, and we were a very young, young country. And so cooking, we weren't thought of as having a culinary history, and and that was something that was really important to, for him to promote as well. Do you ever cook from either of the cookbooks? No. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, and I tell everyone this, I like proselytize around the uh, the section in A Treasury of Great Recipes. It's very brief, but it's where uh, your mother and father talk about the way that they handle roux, like a roux base, where they, mm. would, they would do the prep and then freeze it, and then they would use a melon baller to just get out however much they needed whenever. You're pretty brilliant, right? It is brilliant. I do it now, and it works like a charm. <laughs> <laughs> There are some incredible recipes in those cookbooks, including probably my all-time favorite lobster bisque recipe of all time, which is super rich and very delicious. And coming up, Victoria is going to speak about a recent interview in which she talked about her father's very personal life. But before we dive into that, we're going to take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors. That delicious sponsor is BlueApron.com. So for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. I love cooking with Blue Apron because it makes it super easy to put together what seem like really fancy-pants unicorn uh, dinners for my husband and myself. 
Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for uh, the food that they get for you, and it comes right to your home. Whether that's Japanese ramen noodles or wild-caught Alaskan salmon, Blue Apron is going to bring you the absolute best. There's incredible variety. You can tailor your uh, shipments to meet your exact needs. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash history. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to make incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. Once again, that is blueapron.com slash history. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So now we are going to hear some really... uh very frank and open discussion from Victoria about sharing information about her father's sexuality and her mindset about protecting her father's image. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, a little more modern and a a thing that came up with you in an interview last year. And when you were promoting uh, the reprint of the book, you chose in an interview to address the rumors about your father's sexuality and confirm that based on the knowledge you had, you believed that he had indeed had sexual experiences with men as well as women. And I know from reading both your book and your blog that you are very thoughtful about what you share of both yourself and your father's story. So can you talk about what led you to make the decision that that this was something that you wanted to share and at that time? When I was writing his biography, so many people asked me or assumed that he was bisexual. And I felt that if I was going to just say no, I don't think he was, well, what basis did I have to say that? And I remember talking to Roddy McDowell and saying, you know, Roddy, I've I've talked to all these people. They've said to me, oh, I have absolute proof that your dad was bisexual. And then I would follow the the bouncing ball to that line of whatever the proof was, and there was nothing there. You know, he winked at me. He was in a gay bar, you know, but, I mean, there was no, nothing that I would call proof. And I I was really relieved, in a way, not to find anything, because I felt that there was all this focus on what what happened versus who my dad was, which was one of the most, open-minded, loving, supportive people in um, toward gays and lesbians. And at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, he did one of the first, if not the first, public service announcements about not being afraid of AIDS at a time where most of uh, sort of the, the bigger people associated with Hollywood were, um, were ignoring it. Now, that's not to say all of them. Certainly, Elizabeth Taylor was doing a me- wonderful stuff. You know, there were many people who were, but Ronald Reagan, who was certainly a peer of my dad's uh, and was the president of the United States, was obviously doing everything he could to ignore it, and that is in part what created no support for the AIDS epidemic in the public health sector. So, um it was really much more important for me to talk about that, which is what I got to talk about. But as time went on and people um, began giving me more information, which was unsolicited, I wasn't out there looking for it, I realized that I had this feeling that I was protecting something. And I I was uncomfortable with that. I thought, what am I protecting? And And I was brought up to protect my dad's image all the time, to be really concerned that um, he, 
he be seen in the best light? And and so I thought, well, okay, so who taught me that? My mom taught me that. It wasn't really something that my dad cared so much about. It was really more how my mom believed that he should be seen. So I I really started feeling that I was acting kind of from a childlike place of fear instead of a grown-up place of of love. And I was on doing a radio interview one day and a guy asked me the question and I just said something. And and it was again that that what was much more important to me than than whether my dad, you know, had relationships with men and women or not. And and although at this point I'm, you know, fairly sure, of course, I wasn't there. Thank God. Um, <laughs> but you know, I um, it's certainly something that has been affirmed by other people. Um, so, in so far as that's something that probably is true. I still felt that the most important part of the story was that my dad was somebody who went through the world with an open heart and an open mind and was supportive of everyone. And now I think there is so much fluidity, much more fluidity around the idea of gender and sexuality anyway. And frankly, I think he would have been so much happier in this world not happy about the political situation, but happier in a world in which young people, at least, are leading the way to have so much more open-heartedness in how they connect with other people, because that's who my dad was. And that kind of leads beautifully into my my next question, which maybe you've just answered, which is that people who never met your father and only know him through his films love him, like deeply love him, even now, decades after his death. And why do you think he, even when playing villains, people just fell so deeply in love with him? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And I, I, you know, this is a man who we started his Facebook page less than three years ago, and he has 215,000 Facebook likes and just growing. That's incredible, right? And some people who were far, far bigger stars than he was during his lifetime are more or less forgotten. And he, who who had a very long career but was by no means the biggest of Hollywood stars, has been remembered. I think in part it's because his fan base is the horror community who gets him, who got him, who really, people are always like, well, you know, do you think he regretted being typecast? You know, that's giving the idea that horror fans, you know, have no other interests outside of horror. That's not true. So they got that he was a Renaissance man. They got his interest in the arts. They got, because... Horror films are among the most artistic, not, you know, the slasher blood-spurting-out ones necessarily, but the gothic horror is incredibly artistic and beautiful. And and so here's my dad coming out of um, that genre and connecting with people who love poetry, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. And um, so I think that it's it's in large part due to the horror fans to whom I will always be grateful. But the other thing I think is something that I thought might 
necessar- not necessarily serve him. I thought, you know, it's too bad that he never got to play one of those Dracula, Frankenstein-type parts, a, a monster, a, a particular character. But because he really didn't, what happened was that he came through all of his parts. And I think that what makes people last is when there's something beneath their public persona, a kind of charisma and, a, and a, something in which we are personally interested. And I think that shines through his performances. So here's this person playing scary people, right? And I think a lot of people are drawn to the horror genre because it's a way, it's a, it's a form of catharsis. It's a way of working your, your, your stuff out by going into the dark and facing the things you're most scared of and handling it and coming out. And here's this man who, no matter what he was doing, and oh my God, you know, he did a lot of horrible things. He made people eat their own poodles, for heaven's sake. <laughs> so here is a man who was doing these horrific things and you never could hate him. And you always had this sense that he was okay. You know, he was not scary. Right. So. Uh, For anyone who hasn't seen any of your father's films, which is a shocking concept to wrap my head around, but um, which do you think is the best one for a, a a newbie to start with? Uh, a horror, um, any of his films. Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> well, I think you'd have to go with something like House of Wax or House on Haunted Hill, um, one of those 50s ones. And then probably from there, maybe the Corman Poe films. Yeah. Um, but those 50 one, 50s ones are so great, and he's so suavely evil. It's really kind of fabulous. Ugh. So I think I think I've got to go with that. Okay. Uh, and then my final question for you is that your father, as we've been talking about, has really become a larger-than-life figure and an entertainment icon for a lot of people. Is there anything that you wish people knew about him that isn't usually mentioned when he is talked about? I think the thing that interests me most is that he understood that celebrity is a currency in our society. It is something that really matters in our society, for better or for worse. But he understood that an actor is a public servant, that if you are an actor, you need your audience to support you. Otherwise, you're not getting paid for your work. And so... Here is this man who understands that. He understands how to keep himself in the public eye. And yet, what he does with that is he uses that to help other people. He understood how people regarded him and what they wanted from him And he used that to give back. And I think that if we had more of that in our world now, it would be an extraordinary thing. I am staying with a friend right now, and I'd never watched The Voice, uh, and she loved The Voice, so I was watching it. Um, And I was really cheered (laughs) by how supportive and excited all the the um the different celebrities 
singers are who come on and, and work with these young people. And that's what my dad did in a very quiet way all the time. So he, he didn't necessarily have to be on TV to do it. He would correspond with a young person regularly. He would commission an original work of art from a young artist. He would send a young artist tickets to hear him speak if he was speaking in a nearby area. He was constantly in touch with young artists and supportive of them pursuing a career in the arts. And I wish more people uh, would see that their celebrity can be used as a form of philanthropy. Um, And I'm not saying people don't do that. I mean, certainly we hear a lot about people like Angelina Jolie and what she's done as a humanitarian in the world. So um, I'm, I'm not saying he was unique in it, but he did it because he loved people. And that is the best reason to do anything. He did it from a pure, open-hearted place. And i uh, that is the thing I would like people to remember more about him than, oh, he scared me to death. <laughs> Although that's good, too. <laughs> yes, but it's a beautiful example to set for the future. Um, Victoria, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. I feel so spoiled. Oh, it was such a pleasure. And honestly, it was so fun listening to your questions because I I feel like you know him as well as I do. (laughs) And and that's been one of the real gifts for me of what I do. If you had told me when I was younger that I would be just, you know, going around talking about my dad and I'm in my 50s, I would have thought, oh, my God, don't you have something better to do? (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that I get this wonderful, wonderful um, opportunity to share someone I love with other people who love him. I mean, I love my dog, and, you know, uh, nobody's asking me to be on their podcast to talk about how much I love my dog. And so for me, I I feel like it's such a gift to love someone so much, feel that he is so loved by other people, and and to get to share that. And it's almost like I'm part of this big family. We're all part of Vincent Price's family. And that, you know, so I feel like, oh, my God, there you are, and you know who he was. You you know things about him, and, and they matter to you. And I just, that's really, really cool to me. Well, it's cool to me, too. Um, where can people find you? Because I'm sure that they will want to hear more of your your writing and possibly your lectures as you travel around. Uh, so where can they Absolutely. find that Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So for Vincent Price, we have a website, which is www.vincentprice.com. And I have my website, which is victoriaprice.com. I think the website that I'm keeping most up with is... Uh, my website, which is dailypracticeofjoy.com. I write a weekly blog about creating a practice of joy that's very much inspired by my father. 
and I do go all over uh, the country and the world talking about my dad and talking about joy, and I have a new book about joy that will be coming out in the beginning of 2018, which I'm I'm really excited about. And so uh, I try to keep up on social media as well, and that's almost easier than keeping the website up because I'm kind of a one-man band and you only have so many hands. So uh, my my personal social media for Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all those things is One Brave Life. And my dad, very appropriately, is Master of Menace. And mm-hmm. he's on everything as well. Facebook, uh, Twitter, Pinterest, uh, Instagram. And I'm, I try to post regularly and have a lot of fun doing it. Excellent. We will put all of that in the show notes as well so people have a handy guide. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on this show. And I, I, uh, I can't wait to uh, hear people's response. Yay. Okay, so I totally fangirled out during that interview. (laughs) But Victoria was incredibly gracious and wonderful, and I could have talked with her forever. I am a fan of hers almost as much as I am of her father's. I have read her book, of course, but also her blog for some time. She's just a, a really lovely writer, and she examines the world in a way that is very enlightening, I think. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about Vincent Price's life, her book is a very thorough and very honest biography, and it weaves Vincent's own writing and accounts from other people into the narrative, so it's really quite rich. She originally wrote that in 1999, six years after Vincent Price died, but a new edition of it came out in 2014. His life was so full of unique experiences that it's really easy to see how he truly lived by one of his most famous quotes, which was, a man who limits his interests limits his life. So thank you once again to Victoria Price for being so wonderful and sharing so many stories about her father's life. Uh, we will include all of those links that she mentioned in the show notes. Uh, and now I will do a very brief listener mail because this episode is running super long. Um, this one is from our listener, G.S. Denning, who sent us a book, uh, and writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I have been a listener and fan since 2011, and I just caught up to the Salt Lake Comic Con historical fiction podcast. Oh, it made me guilty. Uh, remember when the authors talked about what a rich vein history podcasts were and how you were the underappreciated curators of their content? Well, in 2012, I started writing a goofy, nerdy Sherlock Holmes send-off based in late Victorian London. The whole time I was listening to your podcast, mining you guys for inspiration and fun snippets from history that I could incorporate and lampoon. I got a lot of them. Things went well. I sold that book and it's out in stores now. What I did not do is thank you as you deserve. Uh, in close, you'll find a copy of my book, Warlock Holmes, A Study in Brimstone. Enclosed in that, you will find a ton of previous podcast topics, from racial information mined from your episode on Pablo Funk, to the gunpowder plot, to cameos by Elizabeth Blackwell and Emperor Norton. You guys have been with me all the way. Hellhound of the Baskervilles is due out next May, and the year after that, book three, by which time I'll have recycled material from your episodes on The Great Stink, Boudicca, Ned Kelly, Victoria and Albert, The Wedding Traditions episode, thank you for setting me right on that wretched cake, Uh, The Potato Famine, The Luddites, The Opium and accused by a ghost, at least. Uh, 
It is a lonely thing to write a book. Imagine yourself as a diehard Star Wars fan. Okay, that's done. I live that life. Uh, now imagine Star Wars was never released to the public and you're the only person who knows about it. That's what authorship is. But all through it all, the ups and downs of getting an agent and getting a publisher and agonizing and editing and worrying that people won't like it to rejoicing when it turns out that they do, you've been my constant support and inspiration. I bet there are dozens like me, maybe hundreds, people with a wellspring of gratitude and love for you and the work that you do who have never taken the time to let you know what it means to them. So I'm letting you know. Thank you, G.S. Denning. Uh, and we got a book along with this, so I will probably read it first because I'm selfish and it looks very funny. Uh, <laughs> so I will be reading Warlock Holmes and then I will hand it off to Tracy because, again, I am selfish. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was such a sweet letter and it made me chuckle and feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Yay! <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at How Stuff Works. We're also available across all social media as Missed in History. So that's Twitter at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, uh, Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, Missed in History.tumblr.com, and Instagram at Missed in History. If you would like to visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com, you can do that. Go there, type in something interesting in the search bar. You will churn up so much content that you can enjoy and uh, occupy yourself with. You can come and visit Tracy and me at MissedInHistory.com, where you can find a backlog of all of the episodes of the show ever of all time as well as show notes for any of the ones Tracy and I have worked on together. So we encourage you, come and visit us online at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 